Rising some 3,200 feet above the valley floor, El Capitan sits at the west end of Yosemite Valley. El Cap is the eighth largest single rock in the world, and it's estimated to be about 100 million years old. When climbing or simply walking to the base of the rock and touching it, you may very well be the first person or even the first living thing to ever touch that piece of rock. It's made up of three different types of granite, the pale gray granite with the black speckles, the taft granite that's slightly darker and forms the upper parts of the rock, and the diorite, the black sections on the southwest face that form what's called the North American Wall. The North American Wall is named because of its similarity to a map of North America. El Capitan means the chief or the captain in Spanish and was originally called Tutacanula by the Miwok, the Native American people who lived in the valley for thousands of years prying to be discovered by outsiders in 1851. My name is Jeff Bargin and this is the High Adventure Podcast. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the High Adventure Podcast. If you've listened to Seasons 1 and 2, I'd like to welcome you back. If you're new to the podcast, I'd like uh, to welcome you and I hope you enjoy what we have to offer. This is Volume 1 of Trip Report. We'll start a multi-episode single story soon. In fact, we're already in production on that story right now. But this season I'd like to present some great little stories that otherwise might be hard to find. Adventurers of all kinds often write trip reports. These little stories describe the experience of a person or a group of people on one particular trip. These trip reports live on personal blogs and on specialized forums all over the place. I've been a big fan of trip reports for a long time. I like that they're first person and describe what a person went through rather than an outside observer's speculation on their efforts. Of course, being written by adventurers and not always professional writers, they sometimes are a bit crude in structure and rougher around the edges than the polished stories, but that too is what I like about them. Sometimes these reports can get a bit technical and use slang that's not always familiar to folks who don't participate in these activities. A piece of equipment or a specific technique might be mentioned, but these reports were often written for a small group of peers rather than the general public. At times, I will try to explain the details, but mostly I'm just going to read these reports as written. And if you're curious, you can research the unfamiliar terms and slang that are brought up in these reports. Some of the trip reports I've selected so far are from people that are very worthy of following on social media. I'll try to give you their social media contact information when it's available. Our stories up to this point have been unique and stories of courage and vision. I think that most trip reports offer that same quality. I think that everyone going out and pushing a limit, whether it be the limit of the sport or a personal limit, and doing something now everyone else is willing to do, then that could qualify as a story of courage. The trip reports I'll present are the ideas and thoughts of the individual who wrote the report. The uh, views and experiences belong to the writer and may not always reflect my personal opinions. All the trip reports that I'll be presenting are presented with the permission of the authors of those reports. Full disclosure, several of the trip reports I've chosen to begin this season are from friends of mine. I picked these because I know the folks well and in some cases have interviewed them for other projects I've produced. When it seems to fit the format and the story, I'll include those interviews in the episode. If you think that you have a trip report that you'd like us to present, send us a message through email at thehighadventurepodcast at gmail.com or find us on social media and I'll let you know how to submit your story. Please do not submit your story without first contacting us. I'd like to tell you about a few things right now that are happening that we're really excited about. First, we dropped our first audiobook. It's called Everest Alone, Maurice Wilson's 1934 journey to be the first to stand on the summit. If that story sounds familiar, it should. We've gone back into the episodes of Season 2 and added a new foreword and an epilogue and edited and remastered the episodes for an audiobook presentation. The episodes are broken into chapters and the story runs about five hours long. The cost of the new audiobook is five bucks. That's it. Less than a cup of specialty coffee that will give you maybe ten minutes of enjoyment. We're giving you over five hours of content for five bucks. 
You can order your digital download from our website, accidentalproductions.net. At the top of the homepage, you'll find the book title link that uh, takes you straight to the store. For those of you interested in our film, Assault on El Capitan, we have a limited number of DVDs available. The DVD version has over 90 minutes of added content, including a short film on Ammon's base jumping accident and, and extended interviews with the entire cast of Assault on El Capitan. The next little thing we're asking this season is for you to help us out a little bit and help us continue to bring you these stories. If you enjoy an episode, please go to our website, accidentalproductions.net, and hit the donate button. We're asking for a dollar an episode. That's all. If we give you any break in your day or any level of entertainment, it would mean a lot to us and, frankly, our monthly expenses if you gave us a buck. We're trying not to load up the podcast with advertising, so anything you drop on us will directly help us produce these episodes. In the last couple of years, we've all witnessed podcasting explode. I get a lot of questions about how to start a podcast and how to manage the media and the workflow of an ongoing show. Well, here's the tip of the day. It's Blueberry.com. Blueberry is spelled B-L-U-B-R-R-Y. And it's the premier podcasting media host. I've tried others, but have always come back to Blueberry. Here's the thing. To get a podcast out, you have to produce it, you have to upload it, and you have to try to get it on all the podcast platforms out there in the world. Blueberry makes it simple. They give you a WordPress website free. That integrates your account seamlessly. You press a couple buttons on the screen and your show is linked to the website and sent to all the podcast platforms. That's it. All of them. And again, tech support is top notch. They have experts that talk you through any question you may have. Blueberry also hosts webinars and their own podcast on how to produce your podcast. There's no contracts. You can cancel any time. You can also easily move your show over to Blueberry from another host. If I get asked about how to start a podcast these days, my first piece of advice is to get a Blueberry account. And you're a couple steps away from being heard worldwide. This volume's trip report comes from my friend Sean Warren. Sean is one of the quiet and supremely talented big wall climbers working in Yosemite these days. Sean lives in England and travels to the U.S. in the spring and the fall each year to climb Yosemite's big walls, and his preferable way to do it is solo. Now, there's a distinction that should be noted when talking about big wall climbing and the styles in which these big walls are climbed. Big wall climbing has traditionally been called aid climbing. This kind of climbing relies on pieces of equipment to make progress up the rock. This is necessary due to the featureless nature of the rock that will not allow climbing using solely your hands and feet. Often a route is overhanging and will take multiple days to ascend and involving sleeping on ledges or a foldable hanging cot called a portal ledge. All climbing routes have difficulty ratings and many are listed in books with drawn maps called topos of the route, sort for topographical map. These topos are meant to help climbers figure out which equipment they'll need on the route and if the route is within their skill range. Now I can tell you from personal experience that topos can be deceiving, not only because sometimes they aren't accurate, but because looking at a 3,000 foot climb on a flat piece of paper is not scary at all. But each line and each mark on that page represents something up on that wall that's in the wind, the rain, the heat, the cold, or the darkness, and add hunger, thirst, pain, and fear, you're in for an adventure. As climbers, we climb and we try to keep injury and death far back in our minds. But on big walls, it's always right there in your face. You're sleeping on a nylon cot thousands of feet off the ground. You have a complicated system of ropes and equipment to help you get your equipment and yourself to the top. You have one gallon of water per person per day. And on a long solo climb, that could be 10 to 15 gallons. Some of the routes in El Capitan and on other big walls in Yosemite are overhanging from the base to the summit. They might be as much as 95 to 110 degree angle. No static guidebook can prepare you for living on overhanging rock for 10 days, let alone if a storm comes in. Sean Warren prefers to climb alone. He moves effortlessly across hard and delicate rock. At six foot six, he's tall and lean, but he has a huge smile and nerves of steel. 
I was in Yosemite Valley relaxing in El Cap Meadow one afternoon, watching Sean through a telescope. He was 1,500 feet off the ground, moving slowly. I looked at the topo of the route and saw that he was on some crumbling rock directly above a ledge, and the moves were rated some of the hardest on all of El Capitan. To fall here would mean serious injury or death. It took him over an hour to move five feet. My palms were literally sweating as I sipped a beer and ate salami in the afternoon sun. Later, when I spoke to him about the move and what I'd seen, a huge grin erupted, and he said, yeah, that was a bit spicy and took a bit of time. It was as casual as saying he'd just put in another load of laundry. Two years ago, Sean and another UK climber, Pete Whitaker, who, by the way, just sent me a trip report of his own and will be presenting that one soon. Anyway, Sean and Pete set out for Yosemite Valley with a goal of climbing seven walls in seven consecutive days. That's if you're counting as one wall per day. Let me tell you that each of these walls for good climbers is a multi-day effort, and some as many as four days each. Sean and Pete did complete the seven and seven, and that story is amazing. We'll get to that one down the road. In this episode, I'm going to read Sean's trip report of a route he did solo called Native Sun. It's rated A4+. A5 is noted as the hardest rating for an aid climb. These A4 and A5 ratings mean working on very unstable equipment placements and there's a serious danger for injury or death if you fall. Native Sun starts in a tree and as Sean will describe, you literally have to climb a tree for about 30 feet and then leap out of the tree and grab for a small ledge to start climbing the wall. At Sean's height, his leap is not as long as what most people have, but as you'll hear, he downplays that danger as well. Before we get started, I want to clarify a couple of things. Uh, when Sean discusses hooking, hooking is a way of climbing when there is nothing to put equipment into. There's no crack, there's no feature, but there might be a little divot, there might be a little hole, and you hang little bent pieces of metal on there, clip your gear, and stand on those things. They can go over the little lip of a piece of rock, they can go into a hole. There's a number of different ways that uh, hooking takes place, and it's very, very sketchy and very scary for the most part. He also mentions a route called Zenyata Mendata. Zenyata Mendata is a route not too far away from where Native Sun is, and it's another very, very difficult route that is done by only the best climbers in Yosemite. Uh, it's also a very, very steep and difficult route. And now, Sean Warren's account of climbing Native Sun solo on Yosemite's El Capitan. I've been climbing all day. I feel psychologically exhausted, slightly dehydrated, and I'm definitely ready to be in my ledge chilling. Below there is a magical but very spicy corner of equalized beaks and small copperheads that tested my nailing prowess. The feature ran out and I had to start hooking flakes that moaned and creaked in a way that twists your guts the same way it feels after a near-fatal mistake while driving. I keep moving over this terrain, tingling with excitement and fear over a lone copperhead on the wall. It's the only way I can make upward progress. I test it. It looks good. I really bounce on it this time and it's still all good. I see my next hook. It's a long way up. It'll be a blind placement, but I get up nice and high, a little higher, then a little higher. Just as I reach the edge, ping! This jolts me awake like I've been tasered. I have a cold sweat, and I'm breathing very hard, a feeling I've never felt before. Luckily, I'm in the sanctuary of my portal ledge. It's a night before I climb the crux of this wall, and I'm not falling to my certain death. It's all been a very vivid dream. In Yosemite, my mind, body, and soul feel so much clearer than in any other time in my life. As soon as I drive past Fern Spring, I know that I'm home. It might be only for a few months a year, but this is the place I love and cherish most of all other areas that I've lived, climbed, and traveled. 
Seeing the Yosemite Valley family always brightens my day, whether it's old members or new. We are all here for the same reason. After catching up with some friends, it's time to gather my supplies and what knowledge I have of the climb. This fills me with joy and a little apprehension. I ask some people about the crux, the coral sea it's called. Some say it's real gnarly pitch with dire consequences, while others are more aware of my mindset leading into this climb and say, it'll all be good. It's all there. I put these good thoughts to use and try to erase the negative and scary thoughts going through my mind about that pitch. Having done multiple walls, getting my stuff to the base is actually enjoyable, not the back-breaking logistical nightmare it was on my first couple walls. On the approach, I run into Pete, John, and Chris, who are standing around the base getting ready for their climb up the mountain on the third ascent of a route called Heartland, a route which wanders through the black diorite of the North American wall. Their psych levels are high. I don't know if it's because their haul bags are full of many concoctions of booze or if they're just happy to be doing some vertical camping. The first day of climbing and fixing starts in the strangest way possible, in a tree. Balancing on a dead branch, I had to splint and equalize somehow. I commit to a mantle. Once committed, there's no going back. The rest of this pitch I spent wearing the rust clean from my not being in ladders for a good few months. Many tangles later, I made it to the roof where there are more firsts for me. A flake that runs out in a roof that you have to hook along. This was absolutely wild and the most improbable thing I'd done on a wall. The blay is here, all natural, no bolts, and upward-facing pro is needed for my solo anchor, but that's a problem for the next day. I wrap off very pleased that I'd made the right decision on what was already a magical route. Day two of fixing, I clean the first pitch and I'm presented with the multi-directional belay problem. Pete Zabrock had told me of tensioning the haul line to the tree I climbed the previous day at the base, but Chris was sure you could get cams upward. I still don't know how things were tied and it looked right mess. But it worked and was safe, so I launched myself at the pitch, and with all the rust gone from remembering how to climb the day before, this pitch turned into another sweet section of climbing which brought me to a lovely ledge before the Coral Sea. Glaring up, I can't make out any features. Just a few bits of tat showing lower out points. My stomach turns a little and keeps niggling while I wrap to the ground, constantly staring up at that pitch. The next morning is a relaxed one. I know there's no climbing today. Just chilling and then hauling my stuff up to the high point and committing to the wall. I spend most of my day relaxing, eating well, chatting with a few guys around the route, and getting all the info that I can. I say my goodbyes in the meadow, then head off with my last load of food. It's a lonesome walk, but my mind feels strong and ready to climb the sweeping sea of granite above me. The hall goes without problems, and soon I'm on a ledge enjoying wall life. I doze off easily, content with my decision. Ping! I'm awake now. Sleep will not come after the dream nightmare, as today is the day I've been mulling over for the past five months, since I'd done Zenyata Mandata. The next step up in aid climbing for me is today. After breakfast, I put on my rock boots and venture up the bit of free climbing to an intermediate belay before the tricky aid claiming starts. I fix my ropes back down to the belay and start racking up for the pitch that I've climbed so many times in my head preparing for this route. Every piece I clip to my harness, I'm checking in minute detail. I just need everything to feel perfect. Once racked, I find myself standing there motionless. Then I snap out of it. I take a few deep breaths, just like when soloing tricky stuff on the gritstone back home, and blast up my ropes to the mid-belay without hesitation. I launch out on hooks, and I'm so totally psyched that I completely miss a rivet. Once I clip it, the first part of the pitch is starting to be tamed. I keep questing, leaving my meat hook for pro on this good solid flake. Surprisingly, I come across a nest of gear that softens the pitch yet again. 
It's still super fun climbing, though. Getting to a rivet, I step out of my aiders and free climb along this lovely ramp, aiming up for a head that has a little bit of tat on it, and it's the same tat that I'd spied the night before. To my surprise, I merely lift out the head with my hand. No taming this pitch now. I keep moving. A few very run-out hook moves, a couple of heads, and I clip the belay. As I anchor myself, the whole world opens up. I hear the road, the other climbers, and it's all so clear. I've always wondered about the mindset we get into when we're on a tricky lead with some danger thrown in or free soloing close to our limit, and how it turns off the world around you. It turns off your mind so much that there could be a nuke dropped and you wouldn't bat an eyelid. I guess this is what people mean when they talk about being in the moment and present in life. Maybe this is why we climb. After the morning of leading the crux, I, I relaxed for the rest of the day, enjoying the view and all the sights and sounds of the valley far below. And I'm especially enjoying watching Bart over on his solo of the route the shortest straw. The next day, 160 feet of rack-eating traverse got me to a belay below the wing. This pitch is one of the main reasons for choosing the route. Such a prominent feature on the wall, and you bivy right at its tip. I'm really in wall mode now. Setting the ledge and general organization is fine-tuned. I have the right amount of food and water, and I can't take that big smile off my face all night. Lying in bed, I'm looking up at the wing. It's true what people say. It is the steepest pitch on El Cap. Following morning, I climbed the wing. What a pitch. I certainly haven't done anything that steep before. It's, it's a fun pitch of heads and rivets and a few pieces in between. Still, the smile won't fade and my cheeks are starting to strain. I wrap back down completely in space. Once back level with my bags, I must be 40 feet out from the wall. After cleaning and setting up the ledge that night, the strangest thing happened. Every time I turned the lights on, bugs fell from above and landed on the ledge. Not flying down, almost like kamikaze pilots aiming for the lights. I, I could not understand why where they were coming from. Above me was a featureless blank wall for maybe 60 feet. Like clockwork, though, light on, they would fall. Light off, they would stop. Eventually, I let them fall, so I had some company on my ledge for a little while. Who's going to win the war is an enthralling pitch. Even though there was a lot of fixed mank, it links to the end of Ironhawk's knife blade traverse, a very impressive-looking pitch in itself. I was in awe of this section of the wall. It's so clean, steep, such hard granite. Unfortunately, the next pitch is a bit loose, which kept me on my toes. I fix the pitch, and wrap back down to bed for the evening. The usual routine ensued. Make tea, eat food, chill, watch the Swifts. As majestic as they are, the Swifts still have got to go to the toilet. Over that evening, I heard a nest perched above me and had a few of them unload their bowels on me. I soon drifted off to sleep. I woke up the next morning in bombing range. There hadn't just been a few birds up there. After organizing my kit off the ledge, the accumulation of shit on it would have filled up multiple coffee cups. I brushed it off and made my breakfast, excited to get to the finger of fate, one of the class pitches of the route. A real variety of penduluming and tension traverses, hooking and nailing. This brings me to an anchor and the equator, the only pitch where my system was not slick. Suddenly I hear the sickening sound of rope zipping very quickly through nylon. To my horror, I watch my full lead line and my full haul line fly out of the bags, meaning that I get the joy of trailing 140 meters of rope to the remainder of the pitch. Not ideal. It kind of dulled the beauty of entering into the finger, which is a stunning corner on brass nuts, even though there's an 8 to 10 inch off width next to it. What I really became aware of is the fact that this huge flake, at least 300 to 400 feet long, is barely attached. And behind it, all you see is daylight. I have no idea how this massive piece of rock is attached to the wall. 
Waking the next morning, I don't feel like climbing. My hip is sore from yesterday's trailing escapades. The sun is really nice as I lie in my sleeping bag, so I make an easy decision to have a rest day. I organize my equipment, count water and food, which, to my delight, I have a ton. I sunbathe, I read, and do general rest day activities. It's really nice to stop on a wall for a day or so so you can take in every feature through all the different times of day. In the morning, one section of granite can look blank. Then comes the afternoon light and a little corner has appeared. The tricks the light play are mesmerizing. I was lucky. I'd relaxed for a day because the next pitch involved wide free climbing. It seems the routes I do always involve some strange 5-9 off with in them or something. Yet again, I was lucky enough on this one, like the last, to be able to aid through the plethora of gear from tipped out number sixes to deep but crap number fives and a few number ones and many slings and ropes. Through gradually tensioning and untensioning and subtle movement, I aided through this section and topped out the finger, another major feature of the route that I'd wanted to climb. The rest of the day was spent climbing the machine head wall, pitches that were not overly fun or technical. The most interest I had with these were making sure I had enough rivet hangers for gear that was spaced out enough, which brought me to my favorite wall-hanging bivy ever. It's perched at pitch 12, sat on the last bit of overhanging wall before the angle really eases. You really feel like you're out there, and you realize this is because both sides of the wall dip 100 meters either side of you. I enjoyed this spot so much I spent a whole day there chilling which was very entertaining as Pete, Chris, and John were moving their camp up. To see their position on Heartland and how out there they looked got me excited for that part of the wall. I had heard nothing from them in previous days, just a faint echo of their voices because the diorite section of the wall concaves in so much. Waking on the last day, I knew I had one final hurdle, a golden nipple, and it was the one I was looking forward to. To reach its belay, I climbed a sweet corner on beaks and heads to a splitter-thin crack in a monster flake. I had seen videos of Pete Zabrock and Ammon McNeely on this pitch, so I knew it required some fun pendulums and cool hooking. Unfortunately, the pitch didn't impress overall. The hooks were enhanced, the uh, head was very enhanced, and generally it was a bit of a mess. The best part of the pitch for me was a pendulum on hook moves. Definitely not a bad pitch, but it didn't live up to how good it was in my head. It was a strange transition pulling onto those last two pitches of Tangerine Trip. I remember a couple of seasons ago when I climbed Virginia, these pitches felt quite hard and scary, whereas today I climbed them in a matter of minutes with no fear. Topping out on Native Sun felt really close emotionally to when I'd climbed El Cap my first time by soloing Zodiac. I felt I'd pushed my limits a little over the level I had previously been comfortable with, but never so far that I completely broke down. This is the joy of aid climbing for me, testing your mind. Whether it's just tricking your mind to stand on shit gear, then forgetting about it once you've moved past it, or managing your mental strength to stay strong and calculated over a 10-day period. As always, proper and prior training helps, but not physical training. It's all mental. By making sure your kit is right, your systems are dialed, and you've spoken with the negative and sometimes quite scary demons that tease you of the dangers of climbing tricky aid. Native Sun, the best route I've ever climbed. I had the chance to interview Sean a while ago, and here is that interview. I'm here with our guest, Sean Warren. Sean is a British big wall climber. Is that appropriate to call you British, Sean? Or yeah, I'll, are you, are I'll you... accept that. No, I like to be called British. That's okay. fine. All right. A British big wall climber who's spent uh, quite a few seasons in Yosemite killing it up on El Cap. And most likely we see Sean from the bridge, but once in a while he's down on there and we get to chat with him. And I spend a little time with him 
in the spring and a little bit in the fall. Um, he had a really, really impressive season. And I'm not saying that because I read it. I heard that from a lot of big wall climbers that were up in Yosemite this season. Uh, past the Piton Pete sent me an email and said, Sean was killing it this fall. He had a great season. Zenyatta Mandata, Native Sun, South Seas, and Lunar Eclipse, and Shortest Straw. And three or four of those solo, Sean? Uh, it was all, all, all were solo apart from Lunar Eclipse. Okay, Lunar Eclipse, you had a partner, and Zodiac, yeah. which, for, you know, for your level is kind of a hike. So I know you had some friends on there. And yeah, you yeah. Went for I a stroll. a couple of buddies up there. So you went for I, a stroll. I was there hauling monkey. Yeah, you went for a <laughs> stroll on Zodiac, and then you climbed some other things. Um, yeah, you called it that. <laughs> so let's just talk a little bit about how you ended up in Yosemite. When did you start climbing? I think I started climbing maybe when I was 13 at the Scouts. I think you guys had that sort of thing over there. We do. Um, and yeah, just from then on, I've done an award called the Duke of Edinburgh Award. And part of that was a rock climbing side of it. Um, and yeah, that pretty much got me into it. I've just been addicted ever since, really. And you're living sort of, and I don't know my geography of the British Isles well, but you're down towards London, correct? Yes, yeah, quite close to London, one of the almost the flattest part. Okay. Um, so for you to go climbing, where do you have to go? Do you have to go up to outside of Sheffield, or where where do you go if you're going to climb? Yeah, Sheffield is the closest place to the Gritstone. Um, I've got quite a good little indoor wall near me, which is only half an hour, which I climb at quite a lot. But yeah, mainly the Peak District is three hours drive is the closest. So you go up to the Peak District and you're 13 years old and and uh, starting to get into climbing. And what's the, the you're free climbing at this point, I assume. Yeah. And yeah. when did the, the attraction of aid climbing and how did that come about? Uh, I went through a little period of uh, reading lots of climbing books about old school British climbers. I got into um, Andy Kirkpatrick's book, Cycle Vertical. And there's a, it's kind of like an autobiography, but in between his paragraph going through his life, he talks about uh, sewing reticent wool. And yeah, I just kind of thought, well, that seems pretty cool. I'd like to give that a try. And I tried most other forms of climbing, but never stood in aiders before. So I took the plunge and came to Yosemite. And how old were you when you did your first trip to Yosemite? It was four years ago, five years ago. I think mean, I was 24, 25. So when you step into the valley the first time, you come around one of those classic turns as you're driving in, and you see El Cap for the first time. What is that like? <laughs> well, uh, my gut dropped <laughs> big time. It was like a big nervous feeling and didn't realize something could be that big. And actually, on the first trip, I never got to climb El Cap because of how daunting it was. And even some of the smaller walls I never got to climb, we, we just, we were in well over our heads. But we had good, great fun free climbing around on the classics. And did you have a chance to meet some of the locals or did you kind of stay on your own? How how did that work? No, we, we're pretty uh, motivated on our own. We spent time in Camp 4, as usual. That's, that was our haunt. That's where we stayed. Uh, but yeah, we pretty much, we, I didn't, I went, rarely went to the bridge actually. We're usually just climbing all day and then as typical of Yosemite, getting back super late because lost on the walk down or the rappelling or you know how it can be. Yeah, <laughs> yep, yep. We've all been there. We've all been done, done those humps and, and rappels in the dark. I've had my exactly. share of them for sure. Never planned. Not one of them I wanted to do in the dark. Uh, no. So... <laughs> So you did your first trip and you came to Yosemite and you went back home and started reading more books and started dreaming and, and came back. What was your first El Cap route? Uh, first El Cap route was Zodiac. Okay. Uh, three years ago or two years ago now. Uh, managed to solo that one. And yeah, in between the first trip and then, all it was was just reading books and people you've had on the show. I bugged Mark Hudon, I bugged Pete. I just bugged everybody for all the beta you need to be able to solo a big wall. 
And that was even before I even met the guys. I'd obviously read about them prior. Um, and yeah, they just got me so psyched and I managed to pull off Zodiac over seven days. Wow, that's impressive. How did you pick that route? Because sometimes people will pick Lurking Fear or the Nose, or how did you pick Zodiac? Uh, I really I really enjoyed the fact of a lot of it for me would be pure aid. I would be in my aiders the whole time. Things like Lurking Fear, you have the scrambly top pitches. Um, the crowds on the nose has always deterred me. Um, and yeah, same again, chatting to people in the valley, they just said, go do Zodiac. Um, I'd obviously done a few smaller rules prior to doing Zodiac and they heard my experience and said, yeah, you're going to be absolutely fine up there as as long as your soloing ability is the same as with a partner. eh? <laughs> right. So what walls had you done to prepare for that? Uh, I've done thing, the West Face of Leaning Tower. Mm -hmm. uh, also done Wet Den and Daydream on the Leaning Tower, the Prowl on Washington Column, mm -hmm. South Face. And then there's some other little ones like Gold Wall over on Ribbon Falls Wall, which was really fun. Mm -hmm. And also the Lost Hour Spire right from the floor. Oh, okay. So you you paid your dues a little bit. You you marched up the path to the to El Cap. And did you do? Oh, sure, yeah. Did you do all those routes solo, or how? Or, or was Zodiac your first? No, solo? Zodiac was my first solo as well. Uh, all, all of them was with the previous partner that I climbed with on that first trip where we went free climbing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then kind of he kind of fell out of the love of it a little bit, I think. And so I kind of just went for it and went solo. I haven't really looked back since. <laughs> no, you haven't. You haven't. So that was just a few short years ago. And now, you know, this <clears throat> this fall, you're doing soloing Short of Straw and Lunar Eclipse and Native Sun. And th those are serious, serious routes for even with a partner. How did you think these are the routes you wanted to do solo. What motivates you to do these routes solo? So for me, a lot of them is um, places that I want to get to. I, like, I kind of sit in the meadow and I see a feature and I think it'd be quite nice to hang out for a day there. I'm quite a position climber for that reason. Um, especially native sun when you have the things like the wing pitch um, all the way up to the finger of fate. It's just be big, beautiful features. Uh, Zen Yatta was slightly different. That was more for, I just kind of wanted to test myself for the technical ability. But then I found out that the big features were just as cool as any of the features that I've climbed up to before. So that was a bit of a bonus, really. And you're picking routes, too, where there's there's not a lot of beta out there on those. I mean, Short of Straw has become a little more popular, but Lunar Eclipse, there's not a lot of people doing that. Native Sun, there's not a lot of people doing that. So are are you just jumping in, or are you looking around to find some people to get some beta? Uh, as always, all of these routes have all been done. You just have to dig deeper <laughs> mm. to find the people who have done them. Um, Nature Sun was a lot more of a curveball. It definitely felt like a big step up, um, only speaking to maybe three people who had done the route themselves uh, and all of them saying it was quite a stout route. So there was definitely some nerves going into that one for sure. Is, um, is, is that the route that you have to climb the tree to start? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you have to do it. Explain that, explain that first pitch because I mean, this is I walked by it and I think I think you and I walked by it at one point right yeah and did, uh, yeah. who was at the base Chris and Chris Troll Chris Troll I was think. at and they were getting ready to do it and he, we were talking about that tree so explain this first pitch <laughs> okay so you have to probably climb maybe twenty foot don't quote me on the the distance up up, up a tree walk out onto a ever-dying branch and then bust out a little mantle out of this first, uh, out of the tree. But because of the how dead the branches, uh, luckily Eric came up with a really good idea of kind of tying a lot of the branches together, almost to kind of make it a lot stronger. And from doing that, it felt just so much fun and such a weird experience to tie trees together to then be able to get onto the wall. And, and getting onto the walls, no joke. You say just a little mantle off of the tree, but did you have to jump off that tree? No, oh, luckily I don't. <laughs> no, you don't because you're you're huge. You're, I mean, for the <laughs> listeners, Sean's, you what, 6'5", six, 6'6"? Six, six? Yeah, 6'5". Six 6'5", yeah. and with a wingspan, ridiculous wingspan. The rest of us mortals, people <laughs> who are shorter, literally have to jump off of the branch and grab that mantle, right? 
Yeah, pretty much. I think Houdon had a bit of trouble when he first done it. Yeah, and, and this is when you're saying 20 feet off the ground, you're being mm, maybe underestimating. Yeah. That thing seems okay, to be like 30, 35. Feet then, yeah, no. yeah, <laughs> 35, not, 40 feet. <laughs> and it's a, it's a straight drop to the ground. It is a horrifying thing. When somebody said, This is what you do, I thought it, I thought when we were walking there and we were talking about that. And he said, we have to do that. I thought he was joking. I thought there's no way this route <laughs> starts like this. It's just, and it does. And that's, and then you see the mantle and go, well, how do you get from the branch? That branch is tiny and it's dead. And how do you do that? So that, that's, that's, oh, that's just a horrifying start to something. And that's not even, uh, it, it, it's it not really the crux. The ascent, though. Yeah. It's not the crux, right? No, no, not at all. <laughs> but it, it certainly did feel quite spicy. <laughs> Yeah, groundfall, dead before you even start. I, I had a runner in the tree. I tied a tree branch off. <laughs> oh yeah, okay. Yeah, that psychological pro, right? That's not that's not holding anything. And then you fall down, and who knows where the rattlesnakes are down there, and what's going to happen there. So we had that podcast oh, yeah. with Toby. The joy of your rattlesnake experience comes back again. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It was quite the rattlesnake season. Speaking of rattlesnakes, because it was so, you know, crawling with them in the spring, how was it in the fall? Did you see a lot of them up there? Uh, I saw the most I've ever seen. I saw three this trip. Wow. I saw a couple of big boys uh, around by Zodiac, where you had your little experience. Probably I know and that I saw, one well, yeah. Yeah, I saw a little baby um, when I was actually walking up the talus uh, before you come into the forest mm-hmm. at Tangerine Cliff on Elcat. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're quite uh, incredible creatures, really. But being in, from England, we only have little adders, so it was nice to see. Yeah, well, I, I think I know both those ones because I know that uh, I stepped over that little one by Tangerine Trip <laughs> on the talus. He's laying right there on the talus. And uh, Irish Paul Brennan was ahead of me, and I yelled at him. I said, hey, did you see this snake? He's like, what? I said, you just walked over it. And uh, that's how I met Paul. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, shout out to him because I know he'll hear and uh, then that other one was pretty good size, the one we ran into at the base of Zodiac that was hovering around Topher's head. Um, so he's probably <laughs> gotten bigger in the last six months because there's plenty to eat up there. Yeah, I think we should start naming them or tagging them because I think we'll know who they are next spring. They'll be they'll be good size next spring. I'm not looking forward to seeing them. Um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, You've done South Seas as well, which is no joke. That was a few years back. Did you have a you solo that one as well? Yeah, yeah, that was solo. That was uh, last fall. The choices you make, it seems like you are picking routes that are a little more obscure, not often done solo. Am I right about that? Um, yeah, they were done. They, they've all been climbed solo for sure. Um, but there's not so many people soloing these days. It seems like. Yeah. So, they, Kind of does seem strange, I think, but they have all been soloed before. But like you say, it's it's rare. I mean, maybe maybe one a season or so. It's not like it's one after another. No, you can kind of get the usual Zenyatta and the shorter straw solos quite a lot of the time. Um, but onto the other bigger walls and slightly more obscure walls, like you said, um, yeah, not so many solos. And is that because the fall potential in some of those pitches is bad? No, I think so. I think there's not too obviously too much difference between soloing and climbing with a partner. It's just being able to spend the time alone. The climbing is no different. It's just being able to <laughs> enjoy your own company. And and how do you get past those psychological cruxes when a partner can help say, "Hey, you know, Sean, I know you're having a bad day, but you can do it," and give you that little boost that we all get sometimes on the wall. Um, and you don't have well, that when you're alone. I find I deal with it better when I'm alone. I'm kind of thinking about the other person a little too much, I think, when I climb with a partner. Mm-hmm. And I I know I've made the decision to go up on that wall and do these climb and climb these pictures and make these placements that if I was with a partner, maybe I might go, oh, no, maybe you should do this pitch. Or, and I have that retreat or maybe they don't want to do something and I go up and I don't feel like doing it that day, if you understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. When I'm so... I have complete hold of the reins myself. Mm-hmm. 
I can, if I, as you know, I, I spend quite a lot of rest days while I'm climbing. Mm-hmm. And I wake up that morning and don't feel like going climbing. I just right. feel like hanging out. Yeah. And partner, I kind of feel that necessity to get up and get going. Right. And because you're soloing, taking a rest day can be a rest day. With a rest day with a partner on a wall and you're sharing the ledge, that's not a rest day. You're wrestling all day long just to move exactly. around. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, two people on a ledge is not a rest day. Two people on a, on a ledge for more than one day is like, how are we getting down? That's, that's the time <laughs> yeah. you're talking about bailing for the whole day. I spent, yeah, I've never I, had a rest I, day with a partner ever. Yeah. I, I spent uh half a day on a ledge having that discussion uh, once <laughs> and it's just, let's just get down as quick as we can. And then you just can't get up yeah. fast enough and you know, never never see that person again hopefully um so but now your your technique and your are you soloing with a grigri or are you using a solo device i'm soloing with a grigri but don't tell petzl no no i won't tell them <laughs> especially if you've modified it no no it's unmodified unmodified <laughs> all right yeah. so they make soloing devices uh, I have one called a solo aid, which I use and I, I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell. I am nowhere near Sean's ability of solo. I solo single pitch stuff. Um, but I use this solo aid thing, which a lot of people don't like cause it's kind of clunky or whatever, but it's made for that. So what's the decision to use a device that is not made for a solo protection device? Uh, it's a device that I already had and it worked. <laughs> it obviously saved me buying a new device and I quite like it. I don't do much free climbing while I'm soloing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no need for the rope to pay really slick. Mm-hmm. Um, and I move quite slowly when I'm aid climbing. I like to take my time over the pitch. So yet again, I don't mind having to feed out the rope every other move. Um, I think if I was going to do different styles of soloing, trying to do things a bit quicker, mm-hmm. uh, I think I'd definitely go for one of the actual devices that are designed and manufactured for soloing. So with a Grigri, are you tying backup knots? Is that how 100%, you're... yeah. Always tie your backup knots, 100%. Right. Even if you're using a device for soloing, you should always tie your backup knots. Right. I think one of the things that people haven't experienced soloing and know that process, it is you're, t- you're anchored and you got... You're anchored at both ends. Are you tying both ends? Or are you doing this continuous loop method? I do the continuous loop system, yeah. Oh, so you're not tied into the other end. No. Oh, Sean. Yeah. Sean. Is that a good idea? <laughs> yeah, 100%. That's Houdon's idea, right? Uh, he loves yeah. the he loves the continuous loop method. He does. And most soloists do. <laughs> oh, I've, I talked to a couple that literally went ashen white when I talk about that oh wow really yeah yeah like i said i haven't done enough soloing to know to make an informed judgment i just know i hear mark talk about that and i hear you talk about it and yeah uh, it's just i don't know that (laughs) that not tying into the other end is is a little freaky for those of us that You, you kind of are tied into the other end because you've got your backup knot which is kind of a new end yeah yeah and it, are you doing it that way because of weight? Because then you're not carrying the whole rope, is that? But you are carrying yes. the whole rope, right? Uh, no, you're not carrying all of it. Okay, so it's a it's a weight issue. Uh, weight and ease issue. It's a it's a very easy method. Because there's less cluster on your belt because it's not. Yes, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um. I'm just wondering if things go bad, do you do you go, oh, I guess a little cluster could have helped. But anyway, I don't know. Next time I see you, we're going to talk about this because I, I, I want to know more. This is a really complicated thing. And, and yeah. I, know, I know Hugh Don <laughs> has probably not the best time now. Yeah. Hugh Don has a, a, a good descriptions of it. And uh, you obviously yeah. have it wired because you did Leaning Tower this fall in six hours solo. Uh, it was it was 13 car to car car to car 13 hour solo so yeah. that's um so this obviously this continuous method is fairly quick for you it works yeah I, that, that that was the main thing that slowed me down that day though 
<laughs> oh, really? Really? Yeah, by having the second rope. But like I say, maybe another time for that. <laughs> All right. Yeah, second rope. Okay, we'll bring in more complications. All right. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the Yosemite culture because you come from the UK, you're climbing these big walls, and at this point, you're fairly well known over there. I mean, you're not a real in-your-face kind of person, but you your climbing resume now has put you on the map. People know when you come to the park. People know that it's you up there. There's no mystery of who's doing this. Oh, it's Sean Warren. We know that guy. There's there's you know 10 or 12 guys when you go to the valley and names you hear, and you're one of those names. You're on the wall. You're not a guy sitting around the meadow for weeks talking about it. Um, so how has that changed your, uh, acceptance in the Valley becoming somebody who's done this resume of climbs just in this year? Um, it all, it was very strange. It all kind of, before the South Seas climb, it was kind of like, I was still just, uh, a visiting climber. Do you understand? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but then for some reason, and it's probably just because I was on that big stage for so long, I was up on the South Seas for nearly 14 days. And I think when you, you're on the, the big TV screen for that long, people are going to start to wonder, who the hell is that up there for that long? Mm-hmm. And it, it almost seemed that after South Seas, that's when it all started to kind of, it was almost like an acceptance, yeah. But I think that's only due to mainly being what's that plonker doing up there for so long? <laughs> well, and, and you obviously, because you're climbing these things, you're probably more sought after as a partner. Are you getting more offers to go climb things these days? Oh, for sure. Yeah. And unfortunately there's a lot of unhappy people. <laughs> <laughs> Cause you're a sol- you're soloing, um, but, solo a lot. <laughs> but your, uh, your partner on lunar eclipse was not unknown this year, right? No, no, no. I got. I managed to get to climb with Pete this year, which was um, interesting. I took him up an aid wall. All right. There's a there's lot. Of, there's, a lot there's a lot of Pete's. Let's talk about which Pete we're talking about. Oh yeah, Pete Whitaker. One of the wide boys, as he's known over here. One of the wide boys. Yeah. 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 A couple of wide boys one and wide boys two. So how did that partnership develop? Uh, I met him in Camp Four, and I kind of went through um, a little bit of aid climbing techniques with him and his partner for when they climbed the Secret Passage. Um, which is over near Leo's Prophet. Um, it's kind of like the free climb to Eagle's Way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they needed to get through an aid section, which she basically had to get a rope up to give it a little practice. Uh, and I lent them some kit and show them a few techniques. And yeah, it kind of just, as you know, in the valley, you just meet people and exchange numbers, exchange Facebook. And yeah, he contacted me and said, did you want to wall sometime? And that's pretty much how it came about. And, and yeah, it, it was strange because we ended up on Lunar Crypt, which is like a a not often climbed aid wall, when obviously Pete is known for his free climbing. And how did he take to aid climbing? He didn't actually lead any pitches uh, on aid. Did you throw him out there to free some stuff? He, he decided to take over the reins one day and managed to free this A3 plus pitch, which was very impressive. And he launches up this face, just straight up this face. Uh, kind of gets to this block and says that he needs to trundle it. I'm kind of wondering, why do you need to trundle it? And basically, he has to climb up and pretty much around it. Um, so after lots of shouting to and fro from another free climbing party trying to climb the Zodiac, uh, they all run into the wall. And Pete trundles this, what he said was a little block. <laughs> well, this thing, it must have been five foot high, maybe four or five foot wide and a good foot white, uh, thick I've never heard a block trundle down that talus like I heard that one go mm. it was going for three four five minutes I don't know it seemed to trundle forever wow wow yeah and then yeah. but after doing that and he literally just jammed the block off which was crazy he just put his hand behind it jammed and the thing popped off huh <laughs> yeah Scary. maybe his jams are just too strong <laughs> yeah maybe those those wide boy hands I, I'm going to Talk a little bit about how you and I met, which we yeah, which involved um, illegal activity. If you remember, <laughs> uh, we'd we'd known each other, we'd met each other over Facebook a couple of times, had some That's exchanges it, yeah. and and done that. And I I think I let you know that I was coming to the valley, and you were already <laughs> there. 
And I, it, this is astonishing to me because it just made me laugh at how small the valley is and how you can meet people and quickly gravitate towards them. And I, anyway, here, the story is I drove up and I pulled into right by the bridge and I was getting out and I was going to eat something because I think somebody was coming the next day or something. So I was just pulling up to have lunch. You guys pulled up. You and Dan pulled up right behind me. You get out of the car. I'd never seen you before. I said hello, and you go, are you Jeff? <laughs> and I go, yeah. <laughs> and you go, you want to go on the LCAP swing with us? And I'm like, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I don't know how <laughs> you knew who I was, but you did somehow. And uh, so we, we... A good guess. A calculated guess. <laughs> yeah. A good guess. Yeah. I'm... I'm the old guy driving up eating lunch before he does anything else. And in a uh, nice car. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, uh, it has four wheels and they're round. So, um, then it, uh, then we went up and did the swing. We did the L cap swing and yeah, that's, I mean, we're probably, hopefully the statute of limitations is up and we're not going to get in trouble for admitting we committed a crime, but we didn't put the rope up. It was already there. Uh, exactly. And then, so that, I guess the crime really is, I don't well, know. Well, you only actually really crime swung, is. Jeff. I didn't swing, did I? <laughs> no, you just set it up for Dan and I. You know, did you swing? I don't know if you did. I don't know. It was a lot of fun, though. And uh, for those listeners out there that haven't done the LCAP swing, it's illegal. Uh, I would never tell you to do something illegal, but you might never have that much fun in, in 60 seconds in your whole life. But the, So I'll leave it at that. Um, <laughs> and that swing gets put up periodically by. Sometimes people we know and sometimes people we don't, but the swing is there and there's a certain trust factor of that thing bolted to the wall and how it's put up, but you you just got to do it. You just got to do it once and and check it out. So uh, let's talk a little bit about um, the the politics and the controversy around LCAP because you now are a Yosemite local, a Yosemite <laughs> icon at, at – a fairly young age, you've you just put your stamp all over that big wall community, and there's a lot of controversy up there about trails, <laughs> about routes, about rebolting. Uh, how are how do you coming from the UK? How do you navigate that that very American Yosemite ethic? I thought you're not going to get the best answer here, really, Jeff. I kind of try to take a bit. I take a bit of a back seat. <laughs> um, luckily, I'm not doing anything on the captain at the moment, which will cause an ethical debate. I'm still climbing routes that get climbed a couple of times a year, maybe once a year, once every couple of years. Um, not having to replace bolts on my routes because they've already been done. So I'm not kind of myself getting into the ethical debate as me being the subject. But all of the other stuff that goes on is always so interesting to listen to. And I'm still so sitting on the fence on how I feel about pretty much every issue that is brought up while sitting in sitting in the meadow or at the bridge. Well, what, what's, what's, the, what's the big ethical question that happens in the UK in the climbing areas? Uh, the main, like We have a big thing about trying not to bolt. Yeah, yeah, it's mainly the the no bolting ethic and keeping things clean, really. Um, and if if you can't do it, don't bolt it. Just wait till you can do it and do it solo or do it slightly more unprotected than you would be if you put a bolt in and give all you've got. Right. So that that was kind of the ethic in Yosemite in the late seventies, early eighties, and then then it changed, and then the bolting wars happened. I can. I started climbing in Yosemite in the mid to late seventies. And I can remember that bolting at that point was sort of taboo. You couldn't find a bolt kit anywhere. It was really hard to find bolts and they were just a quarter inch button heads then. Um, and which I still have, but the bolting has completely changed. I mean, there's, there's bolts everywhere in Yosemite yeah. in places you've never seen in free climbing routes that we free climbed in the 70s, somebody has gone back and put some cases two and three bolts in between the existing bolts that were there, almost turning it into an aid route and certainly a very, very tightly bolted sport route, which they used to be kind of 
I wouldn't even consider them run out free routes, but they were, you know, bolts 20 feet apart. Now there's yeah. bolts, you know, six feet body length is kind of the, the rule of thumb. It seems. Well, it's, it's kind of the, it's quite the, the modern way, isn't it? People do quite like the turn up walking on a nice well-paved trail clips and bolts nicely close together mm-hmm. and kind of go home and share it on Facebook. Right. But right. there's always the people out there trekking for hours on end to maybe climb a, a route that hasn't been done in 30 years. And mm-hmm. they're, they're out there. They're still out there, which yeah. is why the, the whole bolting thing in Yosemite is weird. Like that's why in some cases it's okay. And other cases it probably isn't. Um, that's why I've always sat on the fence because certain places, yeah, put some bolts in, it gets climbed a lot anyway. Maybe people have hurt themselves there before by trying these things when they're not the right experience for that area. Mm-hmm. So they've put a bolt in. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a tricky question. There's no right or wrong answer, I don't think. It's really tricky. And, and you can drill down into the weeds in all kinds of different analogies. And, you know, for instance, if you decided I'm going to drive to a certain place in the woods or the mountains and I'm going to be the first person to drive there and you carve out a road and does that mean the second and third and fourth person and for history have to drive that road unchanged or can they take out a boulder can they fill a pothole can they make it easier and safer um, exactly and I don't know how I feel about that either I I, I think that may be a bad analogy but it, it's sort of the same uh, that's, kind of it's, thing. it's one of the better ones I've heard it's not a, it's a good analogy. And, and I'm trying not to be the old guy that howls at the moon and say back in the day when when we used to climb, because the world changes, everything changes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I certainly agree with it in that way, 100%. But then also some people do like just going full bore. Right. And just giving it all they've got. I know of some people in the valley who, some like a little lass called Jenna, her first solo and first LCAP route, was shorter straw mm-hmm. and she she had a few felt like messes up on it and a few of the pitches didn't quite go the way she wanted but she did get to the summit after i think it was eight days she spent on it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so it, it, it can work but i think obviously jenna maybe had a massive experience through all types of climbing before she got on that right right she's bringing so, she's bringing a wealth of other experience that are relatable yeah. um I, I think I'm talking more specifically to folks that spend, you know, 10 hours a day in the gym to train for a big wall. Oh, okay. when that yeah. may not work. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I get where you're coming from now. Yeah. No, it definitely won't work. <laughs> yeah. Um, it definitely won't work. I, yeah. I think the, the minute three o'clock rolls in and that wind starts whipping around El Cap, you're like, I will just go down. You know, I, it's, yeah. and, and that's unfortunate. It's unfortunate because I think, everyone should succeed who really wants to, but the the mountain does get crowded and it gets clogged and it gets clogged with a lot of people that, and you've probably passed them. And I know I have, and again, I'm not a great climber, but I've passed them and thinking, dude, you don't belong up here. It's yeah. you need to go across the Valley and do something before you come over here because it's, and it doesn't have to be El cap. It could be leaning tower. I mean, I've been on the approach to South face and guys were walking up there with these, these massive kits and I'm thinking you don't belong here. You don't even, yeah. you didn't do the basics to even read what you need to be up on the wall. Cause you brought stuff that you're never going to need. Um, and there's just a basic preparation thing of if I bought it, I should bring it. And I don't, I'm guilty. You saw my kit and you laughed at me cause I, I'm guilty of that in many ways myself, but um, <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. I know, yeah. You, you like, well, you, you, you don't need four of those. You only need two. And I go, what if I drop two? And I need far. So, uh, you know. <laughs> so I, I get that a little bit, but there are some things you you know you know you're not going to need. But now I have everything. I have everything I would ever need because most exactly. of it is, most of it is yours. Because um, yeah. <laughs> for the listeners out there, uh, Sean's big wall kit and portal ledge, and now I have I found a couple other little boxes you left in my garage. Um, that I tuck away on a shelf that stay here so he doesn't have to fly back and forth across the world with this, you know, 400 pounds of stuff that can just stay right here. So that's, <laughs> we're very excited by your, your contribution to my big wall climbing kit, which is now 
tripled in size. I can't uh, thank you enough for storing <laughs> it for me. Well, uh, that's not a problem. But what is a problem is I did hear you say you might not come in the spring. And I am distraught by that because I am one of those potential partners out there that really <laughs> want to wrangle you into uh, doing a route with me this this summer up on the big stone somewhere with you and climb with a master. Cause, uh, <laughs> cause... You best climb with somebody else then, Jeff. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> I look forward to getting on the on the wall with you because uh, I really enjoy. Your we'll company. get you up there, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I've 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 had so many uh, near misses, and last year's zodiac debacle is just something I have to, I have to avenge that, and I've already begun plans of, of, minimizing my kit much at your, even though you didn't verbally say it, I felt it. I felt that you thought I had too much. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know I have to carry it all to the base for you. That's right. We we should <laughs> we should reveal that uh, we you helped us carry Kit all the way, and we're we're terrific at that. Um, and got us down and got us up there, and with all that stuff, and yeah, that was much much appreciated. So we will we will pay you back. We will pay you back. No, we'll no. pay you back with a lighter load. That's how I'll pay you back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> As I have all this stuff that needs to be used, and it's only been fallen on once, even though it was a long one. So with that, I think I will wind up our conversation. I really appreciate you being here, and hopefully we will have you on again because uh, you yeah, are a great guest and you're a great friend. And I, I count myself lucky to have met you and to hang out with you. And you know that your uh, room in my house is always available. Your kit is safe in my garage, and you're a welcome here anytime so thanks again for taking the time out i know it's late over there you're in the uk and i'm here in the u.s and timing is issues but uh i really appreciate you taking the time sean no thanks a lot jeff it's been fun i hope you enjoyed high adventure podcast trip report volume one please leave us a review and five stars on your favorite podcast platform and if you get a chance check out our website accidentalproductions.net and our audiobook everest alone and as always, we'll see you at the summit. I'm just like my old man, he told me so.